On this episode of New Retina Radio... We wanted to do it ourselves if nobody else was going to do it. Uh, by that I mean we were going to develop an anti-VEGF. You have to remember what treatment was like back in the early 2000s. The theory from the guru of angiogenesis, uh, Judah Folkman, was that if we can stop angiogenesis, we may be able to stop the progression of metastatic cancer. When God's name is going to want to inject stick needles in people's eyes. That and more coming up. Listening to New Retina Radio from New Retina MD and Bryn Mawr Communications. Greg, are we good? Yes. I'm Scott Kriswanis. I'm Rana Jaraha. This is New Retina Radio. Today we're doing something new. We're having a guest storyteller shepherd us through a history lesson. So gather around, everyone. But before we get there, Rana, and she doesn't know this yet, is going to do a little exercise. Oh. Yeah, I didn't know we're doing this. That's so, right. Am I? <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, listeners, we want you to play along, too. Okay, then. I guess get ready, everyone. <laughs> I want you to think back to when you graduated high school. I know it seems like a long time ago, but think about what your senior thesis was on or what project you turned in that gave you that extra oomph to get over the hill and into a good college. Try to articulate that project as best you can. Oh, Okay, I, I'm trying. I mean, it's a little hazy. You probably have a vague idea of what it was about or who helped you on it, but the operative details of the project are probably lost to time and memory. In fact, there's every possibility that you don't even see that paper or project as all that important, that you think your body of work is more a measure of your academic and professional achievement than a single project. Yeah, I mean, I would like to think so. Sure, and that's part of being human. But also part of being human dictates that we view past events, while important in their moment, as stepping stones rather than as mountains climbed. We tend to understate their importance, even when we know that they are seminal links to our contemporary lives, because we are more focused on the immediate. This is where historians come in. They parse history into nuggets, and they highlight moments that may seem small in hindsight as watershed moments in a narrative. Take the U.S. Civil War, for instance. Speak all you want about the competing forces that drove the South to secede from the Union. But none of that happens, or at least none of that happens in the same way, without South Carolina Representative Preston Brooks beating Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner on the floor of the Senate with his cane. That moment, distilled today into little more than anecdote, may have been the catalyst that pushed the fledgling Republican Party into maturation, resulting in the eventual presidency of Abraham Lincoln. And the rest, they say, is history. Interesting enough, uh, great insights, but Scott, what what does this have to do with retina? Well, the story we're going on starts about two years ago. I forget exactly with whom I was talking. That pattern, foggy memory, is a staple of this story. But we were gathered around what I'm sure were a few cocktails at the end of a long meeting, and the doctors I was with were talking about the first time the Anchor and Marina data were shared at a meeting. Anchor and Marina, you'll recall, were the phase three clinical trials assessing the safety and efficacy of Genentech's drug ranibizumab, or Lucentis, for wet age-related macular degeneration. All of the doctors I was speaking with remembered that the presentation was important, but they differed on the details. Some said that they were surprised, others said that they were more interested in hearing about data from an alternative drug, Genentech's Avastin, which was being administered to patients with wet AMD in a different trial. 
here's what they can at least agree on. And I remember being in the room, uh, which was absolutely packed, and it was packed not only with every doctor who registered. I mean, everybody, whether you wanted to go out and enjoy Montreal, but everybody for that session was in the room. That was very interesting. Uh, the uh, There were a lot of analysts in the room, which was uh, unusual for us in ophthalmology at the time. There was a lot of hype about what was coming, and people sort of expected there to be uh, a positive result. Yes, yeah, so, so Joan Miller presented the marina data. I presented, I don't remember, it was right before, right after her. I presented the focus data. I remember Joan Miller coming up to deliver it. Um, she started with the introduction, the study design, all of the typical parts. And then when she showed the slide of the visual acuity results of Marina, I think there was an audible gasp. In, in the audience. The reaction was uh, really surprised that anything could work this good. At the very same meeting though, Phil Rosenfels presenting, you know, case reports of Avastin. And so really there was more buzz about Avastin. That was in order Kirk Bacow, Bob Avery, Jeff Heyer, and Fung and Dave Brown, all of whom will be joining us on a trip through the biography of anti-VEGF. We've added a few others too. Anyway, ask anyone who was there, and you'll get different answers on how the room responded. Quiet, like Anne Fung said, was a common answer, but so were raucous, surprised, and excited. New Retina Radio wants to sift through all these stories and come out with something definitive. The answer may very well be that there are competing versions of history, and that's fine, but it's better to record these histories than let them fade to black. Yes, and we'll need a doctor to help guide us. When John Pitcher from I Associates of New Mexico said he was interested in telling this story, we jumped at the chance. So, this story comes to us from him. Let's begin. We like to think of the anti-VEGF story as starting in the mid-2000s, or maybe even in the mid-90s, but really, this story takes us way back, back to 1971. 71, that seems like forever ago. Yeah, in some ways it's not. I mean, we still hear that year's hits on the radio. And it was that year that James Bond was cranking out classic after classic, something that we're still seeing today. Diamonds are forever They are all I need to please me Yeah, these all seem like recent developments. Yeah, culture moves slower than science, though. I mean, take angiogenesis, for example. In 1971, this word was just entering the scientific lexicon. But today, retina specialists use the term all the time. And take it from the angle of treatment. I mean, in 71, there wasn't even a treatment for angiogenesis. Today, we think of angiogenesis and three pharmacotherapies come to mind. We've got Lucentis, Avastin, and Ilea. And Ilea, right, right, you got it. It's easy to forget that these drugs didn't spring up out of nowhere. In fact, they were the products of a bumpy road that involved a number of failures and a lot of bench work that didn't pan out quite as planned. Okay, I got it. Mm-hmm, all right. In 1971, you know, the, the concept of angiogenesis was just in its infancy. Judah Folkman published an article in the New England Journal in 1971 called Tumor Angiogenesis, Therapeutic Implications. And Judah was an ophthalmologist? No, not exactly. He was a clinician with an interest in cancer. And he was something of a prodigy. According to his biography on the Harvard Med School website, Judah was still in high school when he developed a perfusion system in his basement that kept the rat heart beating days after surgical removal. Sounds like standard teenage boy stuff. I had a lab in my basement with 
dead rats and beating hearts, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm so sure. And he, when he was 15, he was admitted into Ohio State University, and at 19, he entered Harvard Med School, and he worked on a team with Robert Gross to help him plant the first pacemaker. Wow, wow. Yeah, he conducted medical research in, in the Navy during the middle of his residency at Mass General and then went back to Mass General to complete his residency. And along the way, he compiled a number of medical achievements, including inventing Norplant for birth control. And at the age of 35, he became the head honcho at Boston Pediatric Hospital. 35? Wow, that's awfully young. Yeah, it's crazy. And what year was that? Uh, this was 67. Okay, so that's like four years or so before he publishes this tumor paper. Yeah, 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 I'm getting there. Okay, all right. So um, tell us more. (laughs) Right, so Judah Folkman is just an exhaustive researcher, and by 71, he articulates the concept of what he calls tumor angiogenesis. And it might seem like old hat now, but in 71, this was a big deal. Let's meet Bob. Hi, I'm Bob Avery. I'm a retina specialist at California Retina Consultants in Santa Barbara. Bob summarized the prevailing theory at the time regarding tumors and angiogenesis. The theory from the guru of angiogenesis, uh, Judah Folkman, was that if we can stop angiogenesis, we may be able to stop the progression of metastatic cancer, you know, uh, preventing small metastases from having a blood supply to allow them to grow to a size to be a problem. But how was angiogenesis occurring? Judah Folkman theorized that the tumors released some sort of growth factor that allowed new blood vessels to form, thus feeding the tumor and allowing for proliferation. And this growth factor was VEGF, right? Well, at first, no one was quite sure. Even Judah himself wasn't sure what the growth factor was. And that Harvard Med School biography I mentioned earlier said that it wasn't until 84 that basic fibroblast growth factor was discovered. Around the same time, researchers who published in the journal Science explained that tumors in small mammals expressed the same thing, uh, something that they called vascular permeability factor. And uh, it turned out when it was later cloned, it was one and the same. When what was cloned? VEGF. Basically, it turned out that the vascular permeability factor and vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF, were the same thing. Oh, okay. So it was two groups of researchers, really, that were studying the same molecule, but they thought that they were different molecules. Yep, exactly. And Napoleon Ferrara and William Hensel, two scientists at Genentech, published in a journal called Biochemical and Biophysical Research Communications in 89 that they had purified a growth factor they identified in bovine pituitary follicular cells. They profiled the growth factor's characteristics, and here I'm actually quoting from the abstract, on the basis of its apparent target cell selectivity, we propose to name this vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF. VEGF, a star is mm. born. Yep, just like that, a star is born. The name that would be the source of much frustration over the coming decades as scientists try to figure out how to combat the effects of overexpression of VEGF in the eye. Later scientists would discover different types of VEGF, VEGF A, VEGF B, C, and D, but VEGF-A is the big deal in ophthalmology. And there are various isoforms of the protein, but we'll get into that later. Okay, got it. So the isoforms part is on hold. Um, can Rana and I run through everything that you've just uploaded here? Because it's quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, totally. Go for it. Okay, uh, Rana, you start. I'm ready. Okay, all right. So Judah Folkman, this amazing clinician scientist with a passion for it seems like everything, uh, is a big wig at the Boston Pediatric Hospital. 
Yep, he was a surgeon in chief by 35. Right, amazing. Okay, so um, so then Judah publishes a paper based on his observations about tumors, and he says that tumors must release some thing that allows them to create new blood vessels and therefore grow, and he calls this blood vessel growth angiogenesis. Yep, exactly. Okay, but no one has a, a name for this thing, for this growth factor, and no one's even identified it yet. There are scientists racing to identify it and purify it, and there are two groups that end up studying the same protein at the same time. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay, and, and then it was by the late 1980s, right? And one group called it vascular permeability factor, and the other group, led by Genentech scientists Napoleon Ferreira and William Hensel, call it vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF. Oh, and, and then the scientific community seems to settle on VEGF as the name. Yep, perfect. Okay, so we've got all that down, but how do we make the jump to retina? Yeah, well, that's where the story gets super interesting because more retina doctors and researchers started to get involved. Let's talk to one of the researchers in Judah's lab, Tony Adamas. This is Tony Adamas. I'm senior vice president at Genentech in charge of ophthalmology, immunology, infectious disease, and metabolism clinical research. Tony worked with Judah, and he was one of the people who helped make the jump from cancer to eye disease. I was in Judah Folkman's laboratory at Harvard, where he studied blood vessel growth, but primarily in the context of cancer. His thinking was always uh, beginning in the, in the early 70s, that if you block angiogenesis, that's a new way, a novel way to treat solid tumor growth. But my being an ophthalmologist, um, I also knew that blood vessels were important in eye disease. Were they looking at AMD in particular? Well, for that, we need a little history lesson on AMD. Tony can explain more. It was called AMD in the 90s. Prior to that, it was called, um, somewhat politically incorrectly, senile macular degeneration. Papers started appearing in the 60s and 70s in greater volume. Originally, it was just histopathological analyses, a lot of these coming from Dick Green's lab. That is William Richard Green, MD, from Wilmer Eye Institute at Hopkins in Baltimore. So people were talking, in the 90s, it was called uh, age-related macular degeneration. So consensus had formed around that, that term for the disease. What was even known about AMD at the time? Well, the basics were pinned down for sure. People realized that it was an androgenic disease. Blood vessels were part of the pathology. How much blood vessels were driving the vision loss wasn't entirely clear but we knew that there was a lot of edema and fluid leakage as a function of the blood vessels being there. The jump then wasn't too far when trying to decide how to treat the disease. Conceptually, antiangiogenesis made sense. So we've got new blood vessel formation in tumors via VEGF, and we've got blood vessel formation in the back of the eye in AMD. And like Tony just said, antiangiogenesis seems to be the next logical step. But then if this next step is so obvious, someone else has to be looking at it, right? Yeah, for sure. And uh, let's get back to Bob Avery. Well, I first got interested in VEGF back in the early 90s when Lloyd Aiello and I started a trial. We were both at Hopkins at the time. I was chief resident. And we were uh, taking samples of patients undergoing surgery or even taking samples in the clinic uh, through an IRB that I wrote for there, wrote at Hopkins there to measure this uh, new growth factor, VEGF, to see if it was correlating with the severity of proliferative diseases. And we ended up publishing that work in the New England Journal in 94, uh, around the time uh, uh, Tony Damas published a similar, uh, smaller study 
again, showing the, the key role of VEGF in uh, many retinal diseases. Tony was at Harvard. In the 90s, my lab had been doing research on the role of VEGF in the eye. And uh, the research told us that VEGF was a very important molecule. And it was work we were doing in collaboration with Napoleon Ferrari, Genentech, but I was an academic at the time at Harvard. Tony, like Bob Avery and Lloyd Aiello, was working on understanding VEGF in the eye and where it came from. What my lab did is, working with Napoleon Ferrara in the early 90s and mid-90s, is we determined that VEGF was made in the retina. It was upregulated um, in conditions, uh, disease conditions, and then uh, most importantly by blocking VEGF using antibodies, early antibodies that Napoleon had made we were able to show that we could block um, angiogenesis and vessel leak in the eye. So it was, it was a collection of those data that sent us on a search for a VEGF inhibitor that we could use in the eye. Finally, the path to success was coming into focus. So by the mid-90s, it had become pretty clear to us that blocking VEGF could potentially be an important therapy for treating uh, angiogenic diseases in the eye, things like diabetic retinopathy and macular degeneration. And it's important to understand what the AMD treatment landscape was like at the time. Was there even anything to do for these patients? Well, sort of, kind of. I mean, not really much by today's standards, and it was far from ideal. Let's put it that way. Uh, what, what was it? Well, I'm going to tell you. After the break. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> Before the break, John Pitcher shared with us a little bit about how VEGF was discovered and he told us about how researchers were making the jump from oncology to ophthalmology. Let's get back to the story. Okay, so in order to appreciate how big of a jump anti-VEGF therapy could be and was, we need to know what it was like to treat AMD patients in the days before anti-VEGF was ready for prime time. Here's Jeff Heyer. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Heyer. I'm the co-president and medical director of Ophthalmic Consultants of Boston. And for the last 18 years or so, I've served as the Director of Retinal Research for Ophthalmic Consultants of Boston. Jeff is a good person to contextualize the early days of AMD treatments. You have to remember what treatment was like back in the early 2000s. We had photocoagulation. In essence, we were wiping out parts of the retina to try to preserve vision. Photocoagulation wasn't a great therapy option, and the payoff was not immediate. You weren't preserving vision necessarily then or even a year from when you were treating, but this was a benefit that they would hopefully be able to enjoy two to three years later. Photocoagulation, also called thermal laser, worked for some patients. There were even studies done with subfovial CNV where they would thermally laser the center of the macula, destroy the fovea. Um, and the rationale was that years down line, uh, you would have scotoma control, that patients would have a larger visual field if they were lasered than if the natural history of the disease was allowed to progress. So really, that was the only treatment option at the time was thermal laser. Then along came some good news. The approval of photodynamic therapy with vertiporfin, which was a treatment that was the first approved therapy for neovascular AMD. This photodynamic therapy was preferred to photocoagulation in part because it was less destructive. Here's how it worked. Patients would get a, a dye infusion of vertiporphyrin. Also called Visudyne. This is a dye that's sensitized 
abnormal blood vessels such as choroidal neovascular membranes to a subthreshold or cold laser. And that therapy would shut down the neovascular complex. There definitely were some downsides though. Unfortunately, it also often led to scarring in the eyes. There was a relatively high recurrence rate. There were some home runs, some patients did very well, but on average, patients still lost vision with this therapy. All right, so just to make sure I have it straight, photodynamic therapy was better than photocoagulation, which was better than nothing, but none of these options were that great. Yep, exactly, and there still wasn't a pharmacotherapy option. And hey, which is the entire reason why we're here. Exactly, the entire reason why we're here. So when does it pick up? Good question. Jeff? Around that time, again, the early 2000s, iTech and their drug pegaptinib was coming onto the scene and many clinical sites were heavily involved in those studies. Wait, what's iTech? What's pegaptinib? Yeah, what's pegaptinib? Okay, so this might be a good place to slow down for a sec. Pegaptinib is macugen, and iTech was a little company started by Tony Adamas. And iTech invented macugen then? Mm, not quite. Five people started iTech in April of 2000. They were? Dave Geyer, Sam Patel, John McLaughlin, Marty Glick. And Tony Adamas, of course. That makes five. Tony and his team knew that treating angiogenesis must be the key to treating eye disease. And they already knew, thanks to earlier research, the treatment had to be oriented toward neutralizing VEGF. Before there was iTech, entrepreneur that he was, Tony decided to approach companies to see who would be interested in a project of this scale and focus. Dave Geyer and I, in particular, went around to companies um, who were potentially interested in working on VEGF, including Genentech. We had talked to um, Regeneron, as well as a small startup in Colorado called Nexstar. Any luck? Nada. Long story short, uh, we couldn't get traction meaning that we couldn't um, convince a company to work on an anti-VEGF for the eye. So they created the company themselves. iTech was started in part out of frustration because we wanted to do it ourselves if nobody else was going to do it. Uh, by that I mean we were going to develop an anti-VEGF. There was already anti-VEGF that had been created. Remember Nexstar? That was one of the companies that Tony and Dave Geyer had approached earlier? Right, right, yeah. Nexstar was founded by Larry Gold. G-O-L-D. Larry Gold played a big part in the creation of the very first ocular anti-VEGF. Larry uh, was a person who discovered aptamers and how to make them using a process called Celex. Aptamers were a new molecule at the time. So it was a new class of molecules. They're basically nucleic acids that have a 3D conformation that will bind a molecule of interest, in this case VEGF very um, specifically and with high affinity. Nexstar had engineered something special. Nexstar had an aptamer for VEGF that blocked VEGF that became macugen. A little bit was known about macugen. There had already been a small phase one partly done at Nexstar. Dave and I were lead consultants for that. Because Dave and Tony were already familiar with the molecule, they decided to strike a deal for macugen. So in 2000, what we did is we actually bought macugen, so we took it away from Nexstar, brought it into iTech, and that's when we started our full-blown clinical development program with macugen. They shepherded macugen from that phase one trial. We finished that and, and, and went on all the way through phase three. Submitted the data to the FDA. 
and ultimately got Macogen approved in 2004 uh, as the first uh, anti-vegeferin, the first drug, frankly, for macular degeneration, the wet variety. And approval is good, of course, but there's always bumps in the road when you're presenting a new drug with a delivery route, which at the time was brand new. Intravitreal injection. Kirk Paco has some thoughts on that. Hi, I'm Kirk Paco, retinal specialist in Chicago. I'm also the professor and chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at Rush University here in Chicago. Intravitreal injections weren't all the rage they are now at the start of the 21st century. Now we do it second nature, and look how, how commonplace that's become. And the young people training think, oh, in, intravitreal injections have always been with us, but they weren't. And in 2000, they thought, well, this is crazy. This Maybe the drug works, but this will never catch on. In short... Who in God's name is going to want to uh, inject stick needles in people's eyes? And what patient's going to uh, go for that? Well, somebody was. Tony explained that this route, while unusual, wasn't unheard of. There was already some clinical experience associated with intravitreal injections that showed that it was safe. Gancyclovir was identified as um, an antiviral that would treat a complication of HIV, which is CMV retinitis. The high frequency with which these injections were used meant that these eyes were going to face high treatment volumes. Doctors at that time were injecting gancyclovir into the eye weekly um, for up to a year. Um, and, those, and those initial investigators showed the world, basically, that you can inject drugs into the eye on a very frequent basis, and the eye would tolerate it well. The infection rate was low, and, um, and that in the case of CMV uh, retinitis, you could actually effectively treat the disease. And the bottom line was, intravitreal injections worked. Intravitreal gancyclovir was, no pun intended, was an eye-opener for us. It said that this is a rooted delivery that is potentially useful. As far as this whole story of anti-VEGF is concerned, Macugen helped show that long-term intravitreal injections were a viable route of drug administration. All anti-VEGFs owe Macugen a debt of gratitude for that. However, in the grand scheme of things, Macugen didn't work out so well for treating wet AMD, and it largely had to do with the design of the drug. The best way to term it is it's a partial VEGF inhibitor. It was designed to block a few isoforms of VEGFA. When we say VEGFA, we're actually talking about four different uh, forms of VEGFA that are differing amino acid lengths. These isoforms of VEGFA are named according to the length of their amino acid chains. There's VEGF 121, 165, 189, and 205. And uh, uh, three of those are made in the eye. VEGFA-205 isn't made in the eye, so we don't have to worry about that one. And in the end, Macugen blocked some VEGFA isoforms. Macugen blocked 165 and 189, did not block 121. So it would block some of the VEGF made in the eye, not all of it. Because it only blocked two of the three VEGFA isoforms in the eye, Macugen didn't deliver the high level of efficacy that future drugs would provide. It turns out it's very important to block all of VEGFA, including VEGF-121, because that leads to better efficacy. But that's not to say that Macugen wasn't a big deal. People were very excited to have a new therapeutic uh, modality to treat patients with. And at the time that the Macugen data came out, um, it was shortly after uh, photodynamic therapy and Visodyne was approved, which also had um, uh, an effect on CNV. Um, so people were happy to have another therapeutic option 
because both macogen and, um, and photodynamic therapy slowed the rate of decline. The problem was, though, that patients weren't improving in visual acuity. You did not see a lot of patients improving vision. Still, back in 2005, macogen was the only girl at the dance. In 2005, when, when the drug was launched, it was, for that period of time, the biggest launch in ophthalmology. More people were using it more quickly than any other drug in the history of ophthalmology. How expensive are we talking here, and how often is the drug administered? So it was administered every six weeks, and no, it wasn't cheap. It was uh, launched at $995, which at the time was uh, more expensive than Visidine and was viewed as an expensive drug. Things were going so well that they decided to initiate other trials. We did the first phase two trials in both DME and RVO. And there the efficacy was better than what we had seen in wet AMD, leading me to believe that VEGF121 didn't play such a big role in nose diseases. Unlike in wet AMD trials, patients were actually improving with macogen treatment. We clearly saw visual acuity gains. The average patient gained vision with macogen in both RVO and DME. And so there were plans for us to go forward in nose indications as well. And how did those plans go? Well, they never went anywhere. Really? Why? Business happened. We thought there was a way forward. But then um, iTech got acquired, and so those plans, um, at least our plans, were, were put on hold. Also, Lucentis happened. Meaning? That is a story for another time. Oh, man. Okay, well, uh, leave <laughs> us hanging. I don't, I don't want to, but I got to bring you back for the next episode. Okay, cool, um, which Fair will enough. be in a couple months. So we'll meet back then, and uh, we'll hear the rest of the story. Yep. All right. All right. Sounds good. All See right. you guys soon. Bye. See you. Bye. Bye. Okay, we're back in the new Retina Radio studio. Thank you for joining us on this first episode of our series on the history or the biography, if you will, of anti-VEGF. You all know what's coming up next, Lucentis and Avastin. Mm-hmm. And very special thanks to John Pitcher in Albuquerque who made this whole thing possible. And to WHYY, the station in Philadelphia where Rana and I recorded, and to KANW in Albuquerque where John was. Finally, to our contributors. We'll hear a lot more from them as the story progresses. They were Tony Adamas, Bob Avery, Dave Brown, Ann Fung, Jeff Heyer, and Kirk Paco. I'm Scott Krismonis. I'm Rana Draha. See you next time. Bye. Press 2 to play new messages. Hey, this is Pitcher, and I'm in a cab on my way to JFK Airport. I'm going to read the credits for New Retina Radio. New Retina Radio is a production of Bryn Mawr Communications and New Retina MD. The show is produced by Scott Krizwanis with help from Rana Jaraha. The show was recorded, mixed, and edited by Greg Notstein. Our staff includes Dave Levine, Megan Beiser, Elisa D'Amato, Lara Geis, Julie Kassab, Kira Mazurik, Meredith Pollock, and MJ Stewart. Our publisher is Janet Burke. For advertising questions, contact us at newretinaradio at bmctoday.com. Bye. End of messages.